We've been here since January. We don't know the end date, but we are working through these precious chapters, these 50 chapters of the beginning of the Bible, opening up the beginning of the biblical storyline here in uh, this book written by Moses. At the time, the Israelites were about to enter the promised land at some point between the exodus from Egypt and the entering of the promised land that we have the, the writing of this book, the first five books of the Bible called the Pentateuch or the Torah, meaning instruction. And so we're just in this very first book. Last week, we covered chapter 12, verses 1 to 9, where we saw God's command to Abram to leave. To leave his life behind. Leave behind his land. Leave behind his family. Leave behind essentially everything he knew. And to go to a new place. Not a particular place. Not a specific place. uh, But an unknown place. A place that God would show him in his own timing. According to his own will. That God would show Abram where he was headed. And we got this command. And it was enveloped as I said by a mass of glorious promises to bless Abram and to bless the whole world through him. It's an incredible thing. Here's just this average guy in a pagan society. Otherwise, he would have been just kind of a no-name figure in history. And God comes to him and says, I'm going to do all these things for you specifically, but I'm actually going to bless the entire world down through history through you. That's incredible. He's just an average person. And in fact, his family is pagan. They worship the moon god, it seems, in Ur, where there was a center of moon god worship. He's just an average guy. He's not even, doesn't even come from a background of worship of the true God. And God comes to him and commands him to go and he blesses him. He promises all of these things to him. And I want to, I want to repeat a quote. Because I think it's just so fitting. A quote that I gave you last week regarding these promises that God makes to Abram, whose name is later changed to Abraham. And this is from uh, an Old Testament scholar, Kenneth Matthews, who's written a two-volume massive commentary on Genesis. And this is what he says. The divine oath is like an avalanche of blessing cascading in wave after wave on the patriarch and his children yet to come. That's what God does just out of the blue, it seems, right here in the beginning of Genesis chapter 12. So that's God. What is Abram's response? Well, as recorded in these verses, verses 1 to 9, Abram's response could not have been better. I mean, this appears to be a perfect response to the Lord. He obeys. And this past week, we were talking about this with GC Jr. because the kids came in to the service last Sunday. And, and so in our GC Jr. time, in our gospel community group, we were talking about Abraham's obedience. And I asked the question to them because my wife Jennifer and I had the kids this particular week and asked the question to them, you know, what did Abraham's obedience look like? And one of the kids was Penny Smith. She said, She said, uh, right away, all the way. So that's right. Right away, all the way. Abram obeyed God right away, all the way. If you're looking for a little pithy way to teach your kids obedience, here you go. Right away, all the way. And that's, that's precisely what we see with Abram. He obeys God right away, 
all the way. We see that he trusts God. He goes to an unknown place. He leaves. Where does he get this obedience from? His trust. The, the behavior comes from the heart. And the heart is one that trusts in God. God says, go, I'll be with you. Okay, I trust you. I don't know where I'm going, but I'm going to trust you. Abram says with his actions. And so he obeys, he trusts. And then to add to all of it, he worships. He builds these altars. He moves through the land, as it were, claiming the land for the worship of the true God, erecting these altars to the worship of God, calling on the name of the Lord. And and that involves not just praising him vertically, but there's a kind of proclamation involved there. As Martin Luther would say, he's, he's preaching God. He's preaching, as it were, Worship of the one true God. So like Noah, we have an incredible picture of faith. And in fact, when you go to what's been called the hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11, when you go to that passage and the writer's going all the way back to Abel and he's mentioning all the faith of the the great heroes of the Old Testament, he spends more time on Abraham than any other figure. In that chapter. So like Noah. Who also gets quite a bit of space in that chapter. We have an incredible picture of faith. And in fact as I said last week. In Galatians 3.9. Abraham is called the man of faith. He's the quintessential. Prototypical. Man of faith. Okay. Then we come. To verses 10. To 20. Which is where. We find ourselves today. Not as pretty of a picture. If you, if you could say that, that last week was a perfect picture. This is quite different. Just like Noah. We see Abram stumbling. Right? We got a picture of Noah. He's a gleaming, almost spotless character. In the biblical narrative. In those opening chapters of Genesis. And then we find Noah passed out. Drunk. Exposed. He stumbles, literally. And then here we see that same stumbling in the case of Abram. Last week, we saw the father of faith in action, as we emphasized. So the sermon title was the faithful God and the father of faith. But the sermon for this week is the faithful God and the feeble faith. So last week, the faithful God and the father of faith. This week, the faithful God and the feeble Faith. This week we see the feebleness of Abram's faith. And what's interesting is this won't be the last time. We're going to run into other narratives within the larger story of the life of Abraham. Where Abraham's faith seems a bit shaky, a bit weak. He stumbles, if you will. And in fact, this won't even be the last time That he does what what he's about to do in these verses. What we're going to read today in Genesis 12, verses 10 to 20, Abraham will do again later with a different person. We'll see the same thing happen again in Genesis 20. The same stumbling. So it's, it's an incredible reminder that Abram is not perfect. You know, throughout the Bible, we have many people that we might look to. And think that is an example. And one of the things we need to understand is that there are examples in the Bible. So I can remember, you know, a while ago hearing, hearing the idea that 
You know, the Bible's not about holding up certain heroes and, you know, it, it's, it's not about that. We shouldn't be looking at, at figures in the Bible. That's true and not true. It is true in the sense that the Bible's not about men. It's about God in Christ. But we know that God gives us examples throughout the Bible. That's where Hebrews 11 comes in. We have these examples of faithfulness to God, of trusting in him. And Abram is, in fact, one of those examples. He's one of the people the Bible holds up to emulate. That we should say, yes, I want to be like Abram in that respect. Or I want to be like Joseph. Or I want to be like Job in the midst of my sufferings. I want to be like Noah. Standing out in the midst of a crooked society, a perverse society culture. These are good things. And Paul, the apostle says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. So we know that in the Bible, we have role models. We have examples of the kind of thing we should pursue. But Abram is not perfect. Ecclesiastes 7.20 says, surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. So here's what we know. Our hope is not in being like Abraham. Because if you want to be like Abraham, you have to take in the full picture. Our desire is not to be like Abraham. And if that's the case, what is our hope? It is Abram's descendant. It is the perfect one. It is the true man of faith. Jesus Christ. You know, Abraham believed God, but not perfectly. And one of the things we see about the Lord Jesus is that he obeyed God perfectly. He trusted the Father. This is God the Son. He trusted God the Father perfectly. And so one of the things that is always striking to me is that Jesus Christ believed on my behalf. Have you ever thought about your faith in that way? That, that we stumble in faith. We stumble in assurance of our salvation. We stumble in trusting God through difficult times. We do this. And that's, what the, that's the incredible thing about Jesus. Is he believed in our place. He believed perfectly. And then God credited that belief. That perfect belief to us. When he changed us and we trusted in Christ. Christ's perfect faith has been credited to us so that we stand faithful before God's eyes. Let me put it this way. The one who believed on our behalf then died for our faithlessness. He believed God perfectly and then he put to death our sin on the cross. When he died for all the ways that we don't believe. All the ways that we don't trust God. So let's look at this stumbling of Abram. Go ahead and stand with me for the reading of God's word. We're going to be looking at verses 10 to 20, as I said before. Genesis, Genesis 12, 10 to 20. This is God's word. Now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife. Now, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. 
Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. I know that doesn't compute with us today. In terms of wealth, but that, that's a lot of good stuff back then. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. You can go ahead and be seated. Strange little story. Not one that you expect to read, especially after last week. But here, we, here it is, right before us. So let's pray. Ask for God's help that he will draw out for us the meaning of this passage and apply it to our hearts that we might be uh, profited by the scriptures. We know the scriptures are profitable, as we've seen that even genealogies are profitable. So let's ask the Lord now to do his work in us through his word. Our Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for another opportunity to gather in your son's name. We thank you for him, the seed of Abraham, the offspring of Abraham, the one who brings blessing to all the families of the earth. We praise you, Father, that you have blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We praise you that in Christ you have brought us out of slavery into the promised land of your blessings, your spiritual blessings. You have given us the new Jerusalem. You have given us heaven. You have given us Zion. You have given us eternal life. Even now, we know you and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent, and we will know you and your son forever. Father, we praise you for these things. We hallow your name for giving us these wonderful things. Father, we ask that your kingdom would come and your will be done in this room. As you work among us, we pray for your blessings on our kids as they receive instruction this morning in your word. We pray that the teachers would be filled with your strength, and that they would communicate clearly the riches of your word. Father, we pray that the same will happen in here. We ask that you would overcome uh, any distractions that we have as a result of these fans or a result of the uh, hotter than normal temperature of this room, God. We pray that you would lock our minds into your word and chase away distractions. Father, we pray that you would protect us from the evil one as we gather today and that you would help us to be useful to one another as we are here, Lord. We know that uh, after this service, we'll leave and, and many of us will not see uh, most of us for the rest of the week until next Sunday. And so, God, would we be attentive as your spirit guides us in conversation and guides us in encouragement and helps us to be useful, God, for your kingdom this morning as we gather. 
Lord, would all things here be done for your glory and our edification. We love you, Father. We know that we do because you first loved us. You chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. And Father, for those who are here this morning who don't know you, who aren't believers, maybe they would say loud and clear, I'm not a Christian. Or maybe, Lord, there's deception or self-delusion. People here this morning who may think they're Christians but are not. Father, would you expose the reality of every heart? God, would you show us where we are with you and would you bring mercy to us? Oh God, have mercy on us for we are sinners. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the sermon today is the faithful God and the feeble faith. And just two things to consider. Just two things to consider this morning. So you'll find these on your bulletin. And the first of them is the man who stumbles And the second is the God who stands. The man who stumbles and the God who stands. So first we're going to look at the man who stumbles. And in order to do this, I want to quickly reread verses 10 to 16 to put those in focus for us. So here's what they say. Now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there. For the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. When the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. It is clear from what we saw last week, as well as the testimony of Scripture as a whole, that Abram does have faith in God's promises. So let me be clear on that. As Calvin opens up his commentary on this passage, he says, We must be careful here to discern to what extent Abram must be blamed and to what extent he must not be blamed. And here we must say from the testimony of Scripture as a whole and from what we've just read and from what we'll go on to read, That Abram does trust God. Abram is not an unbeliever. He is a follower of the true God. He is like those of us who have been converted, who believe, who walk with God, who know God. So we must say that Abram does have faith in God's promises. We just saw that played out. He would not have left Ur and wandered around had he not trusted God. He would not have built these altars and called upon the name of the Lord in the midst of a a wicked place, a wicked land filled with debauchery had he not trusted in God. So let's not, as it were, throw Abram under the bus entirely. I think the same is true of Noah when we came to Noah back in chapter 9. But what we find in this story is that he is trying to secure those promises in the wrong way. Abram believes God's promises to be true. He has faith in them and he wants to make sure they come to fruition. So he has this trust in what God has told him will happen. 
He just wants to kind of steer the ship. He wants to make sure that it actually reaches its destination. That it may go well with him and that his life is spared. As it says in verse 13, when he talks to Sarai, his wife, he he knows that for these promises to come true, if he's going to bless, be blessed, and he's going to be made into a great nation, and his name is going to be great, and he's going to have a descendant through whom all the, the world will be blessed, he can't then travel into Egypt and die. It's not going to work. And so, he wants to make sure that these plans come to fruition. He wants to help God out. Make sure it works out. Calvin says it this way. Abram's end was right, but he erred in the method he followed. And what we see is Abram's feebleness, his stumbling, expressed in three main ways. So you probably want to write these down in preparation for gospel community group this week, but three main ways in which we see Abram's feebleness expressed. And here they are. I'll just list them and then I'm going to go through each of them. We see independence, deception, and recklessness. Independence, deception, and recklessness. So let's look at independence first. What do we see here with Abram and his stumbling in his feeble faith independence it is god who called him promised him and appeared to him it is god who has directed him guarded him and reassured him god has done all this already in the space of the nine verses we read but now at the first sign of trouble which in this case is a severe famine not just a famine but a severe famine and the possible threat to his life as he moves into egypt Now here, at the first sign of trouble, what does Abram do? This is very important. And the answer is that he relies entirely on his own schemes. And that's what we've got in verses 10 to 13. God is nowhere to be found. It's amazing. When you look at the first nine verses, God is everywhere. God is speaking to Abram and then God appears to Abram. And in Abram's mind, God is everywhere. He's listening to God. He's following God. He's obeying God's every word. And what's he doing as he moves into these places? He's building these altars. He's praising God. He is God-centered. His mind is God-word. And then we come to these verses. And God is nowhere to be found. At this point, Abram looks like a functional pagan. Or we could just say a functional unbeliever. God is nowhere in the picture. Abram doesn't seek God. He does not call upon the name of the Lord. If there was ever a time, we might say, to build an altar to the Lord and to call upon the name of the Lord, it's now in the middle of this crisis. But that's not what we see at all. What we see is just independent, self-reliant, self-guided scheming in these verses 10 to 13. And I think this reminds us of something very important for us as Christians. We, as believers, face difficulty and danger in various ways in our lives. We know this. Some of us, maybe you're sitting here this morning and you don't have any difficulty in your life right now. You're just like, things are going great for me. 
And maybe you don't, you don't sense any danger coming, but we know the truth of life. Anyone with some age in this room would be able to say, it's coming. Life is difficult in various ways. And if nothing else, we're just going to get older and older and older and older and die. Maybe if God allows us to live to be older. So either way, our bodies are going to fall apart. They're going to give out. Our organs will fail. Everyone's organs will fail at some point. Difficulty and danger is a part of human existence. It is a part of life. There are many trials on the human level. So whether it has come or hasn't come, we know that it does come. Difficulty and danger come to every Christian. And here's what we do. When we face difficulty or danger, we have essentially two choices. We have two options. We have a choice to make. Option number one is to seek God. Option number two, or seeking mode, going into a seeking mode. And then option number two is survival mode. We go in one of these two directions, whether it's financial crisis, relationship crisis, crisis with a person at work, crisis in our health. We either go into seeking mode or survival mode. And what we see here with Abram is he does not go into seeking mode. He goes into survival mode. How do I live? I got to make it through. This is scary. This is dangerous. We got a problem. We got to figure it out. Pure human effort. Pure human ingenuity. No seeking God. And we see this all the time in our lives. Things come up and we just start hustling and bustling. We start moving. We start moving things around, trying to fix things, resolve the problem, get at a solution and then we realize, I've never talked to God about any of this. I'm just trying to fix it on my own. We're, we're in that moment like a functional unbeliever. We are in that moment a functional atheist. A person who has no God, believes in no God. And that's what we have going on here with Abram. He's not an atheist at all. But he's like us. When we jump over into survival mode and fail to seek the Lord. So that's the first. We see independence. Secondly, we see deception. What is this scheme that Abram comes up with? What, what do we have here? What's going on? It's simply put this way. It's to lie. That's Abram's idea. Let's just lie. And it is true that this is really a half lie. But we all know, especially if we we're raising children, that a half lie is a lie. Sarai is Abram's sister, and she is his wife. Whoa. Some of us are going, hold on a second. This is strange. But we know from the very beginning that brothers and sisters would have had to have married because we have Cain having a wife. Who in the world did Cain marry? Cain would had to have married his, his sister. And we know that this happened Throughout the ancient world prior to the law of Moses. That, that in the law of Moses you did have laws against incest. But early on there weren't the kind of genetic complications involved there. And it was simply something that was done. It was something that had to be done from the very beginning. With the first human beings. And so what we have here is a half lie but still a lie. So in Genesis chapter 20 verse 12. This is what. Abram says, she is indeed my sister, 
the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. So we know that this is a half truth, but it is still a half lie and therefore a lie. He is saying that she is his sister. Strictly speaking, it is a lie based on fear. Unless he lies, Abram thinks, he will not be safe. Everything will fall apart. And what he says in verse 12 confirms this. He says, they will kill me. In other words, unless I lie, I die. So I got to lie. Or it's just not going to work out. God's promises are just going to fall apart. Everything, the whole plan is just going to cave in. No blessing for me. No name. No nation for me. And no blessing to the rest of the world. I'll just be killed. So we got we to figure this out. We've got to lie. And on a very basic level, this deception is not love of neighbor. Right? We know that all of the law, all of the commandments of God, everything that God has ever taught, ethically speaking or morally speaking, we know from Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount that they all boil down to two things. That is love of God and love of neighbor. If we loved God perfectly and loved neighbor perfectly, we would never sin. Because every sin is at its root a, a, a not loving God or a not loving neighbor, failing to do one or the other. And in fact, every time we don't love our neighbor, we don't love God. And so the two are always bound together. So at a very basic level, this is a failure to love his neighbor. Pharaoh is his neighbor. Jesus says in the New Testament, everyone is your neighbor. Even for the Jew, the Samaritan is his neighbor. Samaritans and Jews did not get along at all. Even those people that you don't like and that don't like you are your neighbor. Pharaoh is Abram's neighbor. He does not love his neighbor in lying. And to the Egyptians in general. This is not being a blessing to the nations. Remember God's promise to Abram. He said, you will be a blessing to the nations. All the families of the earth will be blessed through you. And here, rather than Abram being a means of blessing... He is a means of great turmoil among the Egyptians. Deception. Kent Hughes says it this way. Abram was using a lie to promote God's work. God's work that the blessings would stand, that the promises would come to fruition. And Abram is using a lie in order to promote that. And what is this kind of thinking? Essentially, this is the ends justifies the means kind of thinking, right? We've, we've seen this in our own lives. We've got something out there that we know just has to happen. It's a good thing. And so we just justify all these other things that we have to do, so we say, in order to make that thing happen. And we can see this in all kinds of areas of our lives. We can see this. In the way we treat people, we can see this in the way we take tests. We can see this in the way we obey the authorities. We do the same thing when we fall into using unholy means to accomplish holy ends. You see, when we do that, think about it. When we use unholy means to accomplish holy ends, that is fear-based rather than faith-based. Because the faith-based approach says The means are simply to walk in God's, in faithfulness to God. 
Because God takes care of the end. I don't have to make it happen. I don't have to drive this thing to its destination. God's got it under control. But when we're fear-based, then we have to figure out a way to make it happen. No matter what that means. So we see independence. We see deception. Thirdly, we see recklessness. Even more significant than the lie that Abram tells is the reckless way he treats Sarai. And this is probably the one thing that you picked up on most immediately, especially if you're a woman. What in the world? I don't like Abram anymore. If you liked Abram last week and now you don't. Especially if you are a wife and you are reading this for the first time. Worse than David. Terrible. Well... He does treat his wife, Sarai, in a reckless way. She is both his wife, and hear this, this is important. She is both his wife and the conduit of God's promises. He's not just being reckless with his wife. He's being reckless with the conduit of God's promises. In other words, in an effort to preserve, this is the irony of it. See this. In an effort to preserve God's promises, he puts them in jeopardy. What happens if... His wife gets taken off. He loses his wife. How is he going to be a great nation? How is he going to have a descendant? How is he going to continue the line of the seed? Regarding his wife, he probably doesn't think he'll have to give her up. Now, let me make this point. This is important. Because at this point, you might be tempted to really dislike Abraham. You might be tempted to really throw him under the bus and think, man, this guy just wants camels. And he's willing to throw, he wants to live and he wants camels and donkeys and he's willing to just throw his wife around in order to get what he wants and stay alive. That sounds awful. And some have read the text that way. I don't think that is a contextual way to read this particular story of Abram. I think what is going on here is that he probably thinks he'll have, he probably thinks he will not have to give her up. The idea is he's her, he's her brother. And so he goes into the land and immediately Egyptian folks, Egypt, young Egyptian guys are, are trying to, uh, to, to have her as their wife. And, and so they're, they're negotiating with Abram and he's kind of in this negotiation and he's able to kind of scheme and stay alive in the land. Meanwhile, until he can find a way to get the food that he needs and then leave the land. So probably this is what's in mind. He's not just throwing his wife around and not caring what happens to her. He, he's scheming, thinking he'll have some time to negotiate. And before he gives her up as someone else's wife, he'll be able to flee the scene. That is most likely, I think. But then something unexpected happens. Pharaoh. This is incredible. This is the the ruler of the entire nation hears about Sarai. I mean, I don't think Abram could have envisioned that happening at all. He goes into the land, he thinks we're going to be in some local area and a couple people are going to say, wow, she's pretty beautiful. Hey, I'd like to have her as my wife. You're her brother. Let's talk. But instead, what happens is there's some local princes who go to Pharaoh and say, you've got to see this woman. And so it becomes, she becomes an object of Pharaoh's affection. And it doesn't work the same way when you're Pharaoh. You don't have to negotiate. You just take what you want. And in the ancient world, the Pharaoh was seen as a godlike figure. 
And we know from anything we've read about the Egyptians that this was the case. And so, you know, there's no negotiation here. Pharaoh just takes hold of her, brings her into his harem, brings her into his palace. And now Abram has lost his wife. But even if this had not happened, what Abram does here is reckless. It is risky. It is foolish. It's also important to note that this scheme of Abram has future repercussions. It's interesting. There's two things that happen after this story that kind of act as a ripple effect of this story. One of them is that in the very next chapter, in chapter 13, there's this nephew of Abram named Lot. And what happens in the very next chapter, which we'll cover next week, Lot and Abram start to kind of go at each other a little bit. Not the two of them, but the herdsmen of Lot and Abram begin to bicker. Why? Because they both have so many possessions. So Abram has gone into the land. He's, he's gone about this scheme. He's been inundated with all of these things. Probably more than would have happened otherwise. He's been inundated with all of these things. And now that leads to conflict in the very next chapter. It's also interesting. Probably the worst moment of Abram's life of faith is with Hagar. Remember Hagar? She's the maidservant of Sarai. Made servant, as we read here in verse 16. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants. Hagar is a female servant given to Abram to help him perpetuate a descendant. And what is she? She is an Egyptian. So it is most likely that it is during this time in Egypt, going about his scheme, that he gets Hagar. And so two things later work themselves out. As repercussions of what we see him doing here. Abram doesn't seek God. He deceives. And he's reckless with what God has entrusted to his care. So that is the man who stumbles. But now we come to the God who stands. Praise God. They're stumbling all throughout the Bible. But there is also a standing God. Who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. An unchanging, immutable God. And that's what we find in these verses. We have a stumbling man and a standing God. So look at verses 17 to 20. Verses 17 to 20. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him. And they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. As we've seen many times in Genesis so far, God's power and plans prevail over human folly and sin. How many times can you look back in your life and say, oh man, I was headed for disaster. And you, you can look back and you can see other people in your life who were headed for disaster and met disaster. They were on the same road as you were, yet God reached down and he picked you up out of that. That's the God we worship. His power and his plans prevail 
even over human folly and sin. That is the message of Genesis 1 through 11. If you did stop at the end of chapter 11 and go on to something else, that's the big message. Is that although there's so much folly and sin in those first 11 chapters of Genesis, God prevails. His plan prevails. His power prevails. His grace prevails. And I think we see this faithfulness, this standing in the midst of stumbling in three ways. So here we go. Three more to look at with regard to God. So we had three with Abraham and now we look at God's faithfulness. Three things to consider. His protecting, his blessing, and his prefiguring. His protecting, his blessing, his prefiguring as we finish up this morning. So let's look at those three. First, his protection. We have seen human folly met with divine protection in at least two places so far in Genesis. Remember in Genesis chapter 3 verse 22, what happens? Adam and Eve eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They fall. Their hearts are now corrupted. Their minds are darkened. They feel shame. They feel guilt. And notice at the end of chapter 3 verse 22, what does God say? I'm going to basically push them out of the garden. Not just, it's important, not just as a punishment. It's amazing when we read it. It's not just a punishment. It is an act of kindness. Why? God says, lest they eat of the tree of life now and live forever. In other words, lest they live on forever in this fallen state. I'm going to expel them from the garden. Put angels there to protect the entrance so they will not be able to self-destruct. We saw that with the Tower of Babel. Nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Therefore, what does God do? They're they're headed down a road of self-destruction. And God confuses their languages and he disperses them over the face of the earth. This is God's protection meeting human folly and sin. And that's what we see here. In the midst of Abram's independence, deception, and recklessness, God steps in. Abram's faith stumbles but God's faithfulness stands. Let me tell you, just a reminder here. This has to be the grounds for your assurance of your salvation. You know, I've read a lot of books on assurance of salvation. Because I've said this before, in my early 20s, I struggled with that a ton. In fact, there's a book by J.D. Greer called Stop Asking Jesus Into Your Heart. Basically saying, you know, stop trying, stop constantly thinking, I, I got to pray a prayer again because I got to get saved. You know, that kind of, that kind of mentality. And as I was reading that book somewhat recently, everything he was saying about his experience in his early 20s sound exactly my experience. I I had prayed to receive Christ at six years old and as a teenager lived like a total pagan and then God changed my heart at 18. And so then I was confused. Was I saved at six? Was I saved at 18? I don't know. Does that mean I'm not saved? I'm supposed to know. I mean, I heard the evangelist say when I was a kid, if you do not know beyond a shadow of a doubt, And I didn't even know what that meant, but it sounded like you can't ever have questions about where you stand with God. Because if you have any questions about where you stand with God, then you don't belong to him. So I struggled. I read a number of things on assurance of salvation. And it is true that we should look at the character of God in us. We should look at the things we do, the way we think, the way we feel, the affections of our hearts. These are ways that we determine as we self-examine. As we make our calling and election sure, these are ways that we come to know whether we have passed from death into life. There are subjective proofs, if you will, 
that we know the Lord. But at the end of the day, and this is the message of everyone who's ever written on this topic, who's worth reading, at the end of the day, our assurance must be grounded on the faithfulness of God. That's it. We must throw ourselves onto Christ. We must throw ourselves at the cross and trust him freshly. So if you're here this morning, you don't know whether you're saved or not. You're really concerned. Throw yourself at Christ. Trust in him now, today, freshly. You don't have to know whether this is the first time or the 10th time. Trust him now. Give him your life. Commit your ways to him. Trust that what he did on the cross is sufficient. When Jesus said it is finished, he took away all the sins of those for whom he died. Trust that and leave here this morning looking to the faithfulness of God. In the midst of Abram's faithlessness, we could say God steps in and God stands. God afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues. This is maybe some form of skin disease or boils. And why does God do this? Why does God afflict Pharaoh with these plagues? To protect. To protect. To protect Sarai from being defiled. Some have said that she did. She was with Pharaoh sexually. But that is really unlikely. As many have argued that. You could be taken to be the wife of a great monarch who had this harem of women and that that person would have to wait to be presented to Pharaoh. So just because she was taken as his wife does not mean that that marriage was consummated. Also, in verse 19, when Pharaoh says, here is your wife, it seems to imply she's yours. I I haven't really consummated that. She's not my wife. She's your wife. And we see that she does this whole thing again in chapter 20, which would be unlikely if she had been defiled the first time. If, if she had been defiled here with Pharaoh and barely gotten out and, and been defiled, adultery, a massive deal back then as it should be today, she would not have then gone and done the same thing later. So it's unlikely that she was defiled. So God steps in to protect her from being defiled. He steps in to protect Abram from losing his wife. He steps in to protect the line of the seed from being cut off. God stands as the protector of his people and his plan. And this is something important that we need to consider. God's protection is micro and macro. What do I mean by that? God is not just concerned with the big picture. He's not just concerned with his plan of redemption throughout the ages in this big kind of abstract, distant, transcendent way. God is concerned about every hair on your head. God is concerned about every word you say to your spouse. He's concerned about every decision you make in the moment of temptation, whether or not to lust, to look a second time, or to hit that key on the keyboard. He's concerned with every thought Every deed, every part of your being, every cough and every sneeze, every blink of the eye. God is micro concerned, not just in a big way. We see that here. God cares about Sarah. He cares about Abram and Sarah's marriage. He cares about his plan of redemption through the Lord Jesus Christ, Abram's descendant. He cares. We also see this protection at the end of the narrative. Pharaoh is clearly angry. 
He is clearly in a position to punish Abram, but he doesn't. Can you imagine? I mean, listen to the way that Pharaoh, I won't reread it now, but listen to the way that Pharaoh speaks to Abram. I mean, he rebukes him with the harshest words. Here's a man who has the power of life and death in his hands. He is angry with Abram. He could have just said, now I'm going to kill you, what you did to me. All these plagues. I still got these boils on my body. But that's not what he does. Why? Because this Pharaoh has seen the power of Abram's God. He wants nothing to do with this God. He just wants this God to go away. He wants Abram to go away. So that he doesn't have to suffer under the wrath of this God. He should have bowed his face. And said I want your God to be my God. Because he's a real God. Instead he just says get away from me. So. Because he's seen the power of Abram's God. He gives safe passage out of the land. He commands men to essentially take Abram and his wife out of the land. And guard them by leave. So we see protection. Secondly, we see blessing. Last week, we looked at that big heap of promises that God piled up on Abram. And the big idea, the recurring word is blessing. This is stated explicitly in verse 2. I will bless you. And we know that this refers at least in part to material blessings. Tangible blessings. The kinds of things we read in verse 16. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. These kinds of things. The reality, though, is that God would have blessed Abram with these things without his foolish scheming. That's the incredible thing. He didn't need to come up with a lie. He didn't need to be reckless with his wife. He didn't need to be reckless with the conduit of God's promises. He simply needed to keep trust in God through a new land. He simply needed to keep trust in God through a new people. God would have blessed him either way. He would not have starved to death or suffered loss. He would not have been killed in Egypt. He did not need to scheme or lie because God's blessing stands. Abram was blessed by the all-seeing God. He didn't need to make it happen. It already happened. And we see that here at the end of the narrative, that even in the face of Abram's feeble faith and sinful stumbling, God blesses him. He doesn't just get to leave Egypt unharmed. We might think, man, that's good enough. God's protection over him because Pharaoh could have taken him out. That's not all. He leaves with all of these possessions. Verse 20, Pharaoh sent him away. And you have to catch the words. It's very important. Pharaoh sent him away with his wife and all that he had. He leaves with all those donkeys. He leaves with all those camels. With all of that wealth. Second Timothy 2.13, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. This reminds us as Christians of God's faithfulness. To those whom he has blessed in Christ. To those whom God has blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. As Ephesians 1.3 says. To these people the message of 1 Corinthians 1.8-9 stands. Listen to this. This is God's relating to you Christian. 
Because you are blessed. If you are a Christian, you are blessed by God. Not in the ridiculous carnal way that the prosperity gospel preachers talk about. That if you're blessed by God, you'll have Rolex watches and Mercedes Benz. And you'll live in a, a, a massive mansion with seven pools and drive and have a jet. That's not what we're talking about here. It is contrary to the message of Christ. What we're talking about here is having God with us, blessed in every way in Christ. One day we will experience every form of physical prosperity in the new Jerusalem. But this is what it says, 1 Corinthians 1, 8 to 9. God will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Christian, keep going. Keep going. Your father has blessed you and he'll see you to the end. Finally, we've seen protection. We've seen blessing. And you got to see this because this is exciting. We see prefiguring, prefiguring. What do I mean by this? Well, let me ask this question. Why is Moses telling this story? We always got to go back to that question. And part of the answer to that question is what we've already seen so far. I think we've gotten at one of the things Moses wants to communicate, and that is that although God's people stumble, God stands. That's the big message that we should take away from this passage. So if you've been wondering what in the world is he talking about up there, that's, I, I want you to leave with that, at least. Although God's people stumble, God stands. But there's something else that we need to see here. And it's actually just another expression of God's faithfulness. What we have here is the movement. Now listen to this. I want you to follow this for a second. What we have here is the movement of the father of Israel from famine-stricken Canaan to Egypt. Right? So follow, follow this. Sarai, the mother of the nation, is essentially taken captive by Pharaoh. God afflicts Pharaoh with plagues. Pharaoh, in response to the plagues, releases Sarai and sends them out of the land with Egyptian wealth. Okay. Let me, let me just ask. This is, not, this is not an extremely hard question. But does this remind you of anything? I would think so. Maybe not. Maybe not. It's okay if it doesn't. It's not, it's not clicking. But this is what it should remind you of. Genesis 41 to Exodus 12. Remember Jacob? Why do Jacob and his sons go to Egypt because of, of famine? Now remember, Joseph's already there to receive them and give them food and give them a home. But they go to Egypt because of famine. And then when they get there, as time goes on, they are taken captive by the Pharaoh. God sends plagues on the Pharaoh. They leave the land. He says, go. It's the same language if you go to those passages. Go, get out of the land. And what do they have? Egyptian Wealth. What, what is this about? Why did Moses include this story in Genesis? The people of Israel are gathered in the wilderness. About to enter a new land. They've just experienced God's hand in liberating them from slavery. Bringing them out with Egyptian wealth. And even some Egyptians. 
God is reminding his people Israel of two things as we close. Two things. First, he is reminding them that he had them in mind hundreds of years before. This is incredible. God is saying, here you are. All these years later, a ragtag bunch living in the middle of nowhere. And I want you to know that your story was in my mind when your father Abram was moving around. Do you see? I brought him there and I brought him out. And this is a picture for you of what I've done for you. And know this. I will be your God and you will be my people. I will not let you go. I will see you through to the end. It tells them that he had them in mind hundreds of years before, but it also tells them that their story is part of a larger story. This is not just some random God. Hear this. This is not just some random God that showed up and decided to take them out of Egyptian slavery. This is the God of history. This is the Lord of glory. This is the God who destroyed the world with the flood. The God who preserved the line up through Abraham. This is the God who stands above the nations, who scatters the nations and who will take the Canaanites and give their land to Israel. And here we go. This, this is our God. This is the one we call Father. The one who cares about every detail of our lives. This is the one who remains faithful even in the midst of our feeble faith. Let's pray. Father, you are so capable of seeing your plan through to the end. Father, we exalt your name. You are the glorious God of history. You are the faithful father of your people. You are faithful when we are faithless, father. And we ask your forgiveness for all the ways in which we are independent, deceptive and reckless. All the ways that we try to make your plan happen in our own with our own devices. Father, we ask your forgiveness for all the ways that we fail to trust you through the days of this earthly pilgrimage. Father, have mercy on us for our sin. We thank you for your son who bore our sin on the tree and who lived a perfect, faithless life that we cannot. We thank you that you have taken our sin off of us, the guilt of sin, and you have put it on him at the cross. And we thank you, Father, that you have put his righteous obedience onto us and you have reckoned it to our account that he who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. We thank you for the gospel, Father. We love you. Help us love you this week. Help us obey you this week and trust you. Help us not stumble and be feeble in our faith. Help us trust you in your strength. In Jesus' name, amen.